Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My Seven Wonders. In ancient times, the greatest monuments, the biggest buildings, the most impressive structures created by mankind were celebrated and listed as wonders of the world. And like days of the week and deadly sins, there are always seven of them. These ancient wonders included the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Great Pyramid of Giza and the tremendous Lighthouse of Alexandria. Later lists of more modern wonders included the Great Wall of China, the Empire State Building, the Taj Mahal. Other magnificent sevens celebrate natural phenomena, such as the Grand Canyon, the Great Barrier Reef, and so on. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? That's the question I ask my guests in this podcast. And the guest I'm asking today is Stephen Fry, known nationally and internationally as, well, all sorts of things. Stephen first found fame in his comedy partnership with Hugh Laurie before going on to appear in Blackadder and other sitcoms, light entertainment shows, and serious drama. But that's just scratching the surface. He's made documentaries which have taken him around the world, written the odd novel, he's directed a movie or two, portrayed Oscar Wilde on film and P.G. Woodhouse's Jeeves on television. He seems to have an encyclopedic knowledge of, well, everything you get in an encyclopedia. He presented the BAFTA Film Awards for several years, as well as half an alphabet of QI. He's almost certainly filming something else at the moment in Hollywood or Pinewood, while knocking off another retelling of some or all of the Greek myths. So essentially, Stephen Fry has made a career out of being Stephen Fry, a good title for a movie in itself. Something of a wonder of our age. Nobody's put you on their list of wonders, uh, Stephen, yet, but it must be a matter of time. <laughs> I'd be very fast becoming a wonder of the ancient world, I fear, however. <laughs> well, you're not that ancient. You're not up there with the, with the, with the, with the pyramids The Colossus yet. of Rhodes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was... Uh, it, <laughs> Uh, I, I'm and avoid saying, oh, what occupation do you put on your passport? Because as you as you all know, there is no occupation on your passport. But uh, but what do you put? Actor, writer. Yes, when asked, I suppose I do use those two those two words, actor, yeah. writer. Um, it kind of covers it. But I like the fact that you said I've made a career out of being Stephen Fry because in the end, that's sort of what yeah. what one would like to do. I mean, not necessarily Stephen Fry, but to be oneself throughout whatever one does, rather than be defined by the, yes. the nomenclature that we you know use for a job. Um, <clears throat> and uh, it's a huge good fortune that you that that I can do that, you know. Uh, some people are very happy to be an, uh, an actuarial accountant or a, a, a whatever it is, a judge or a grocer, or, um, and are proud to be a member of a profession and to be defined by that. But uh, I quite like the fact that every morning I wake up, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just myself, really. I'm, well, it's a bit like, I, I don't mean this to be rude, but it's, I would say this about Peter Cook as well. It's sort of an arrested development way because when you're hmm. at a university, you do lots of things. You can be doing footlights one day, studying the next, taking part in a sport on another day. And most of us stop doing almost all of those things. As you say, <laughs> just, just the one thing. And you that's what you are. 
I, I had a I had an embarrassing sort of meltdown, breakdown, all, all kinds of things in the mid nineties when I was in a play and I left it and went oh, to yes, Europe. I and for, for for years afterwards, cab drivers or people in the street would say, "Oh, how are you?" Yes, you went off the rails, didn't you? And and I would agree. And then one day, I suddenly thought, "Hang on, who the hell wants to be on rails? What is a <laughs> a rail but an inverted rut?" And we all know that ruts are something you don't want to be stuck in, and you're stuck on rails. Mm. It's rather wonderful to be open and in a field. It, it's um. It could be frightening. It, it, some people prefer the security of routine and uh, the you know, definition given them by life laid out. And I wouldn't want to to, to mock that or devalue it at all. But uh, I think to be off rails is a, yes. is a fabulous privilege. No, well, I, I agree with you in terms of getting out of a rut. But that was a rather mm. dramatic, uh, in yes. lots of sense of words, and and I think uh, revealed to people, even people who knew you, uh, just how well, there is an agonising part yeah. of your life and mm. your your mental approach to life that uh, flares up every now and then. Absolutely, and and it's a a marvelous thing that's happened over the last ten or twenty years. Is that that that's something one can at least talk about. Yeah. Uh, uh, whereas for, for a long time these things were very hidden and there was a great deal of stigma and shame. But as we know now, mm. the, the conversation is open as far as mental health is concerned, now more than ever, it seems. All right. Well, um, let, let's get on with your, your wonders, though, because that's uh, mm. the, the pretext that I've got you here to, <laughs> to talk to me. Um, so uh, an interesting list. Uh, um, I wouldn't say ones I would have predicted for you to have chosen, but uh, well, I can see a sort of logic. So what is your first wonder? Well, uh, I've put a sheep, a spinning wheel, and two sticks. Um, uh, There's a very natural propensity amongst us to value technology and advances according to the order in which they were made. And Mm. so I I remember this came very clearly to the fore when uh, I had a fax machine. I was one of the very first people uh, I knew to have one, which is a bit like being the only person you know to have a tennis racket. It's rather (laughs) rather pointless because I had nobody to fax or be faxed by. But I I showed it to my mother and she shook her head with amazement. Mm. And my father, who's a physicist and an electronic engineer and all kinds of things like that said well yes it, it is quite amazing but do you think it's more amazing than being able to pick up a telephone and hear a real human voice in real time with all its tone whereas what you're looking at here is a piece of heat treated paper with rather jagged writing slowly chugging out <laughs> isn't that less impressive and my mother thought for a bit and said, oh, yes, you're right. But I suppose it's only because the fax machine is later. And that's the point. One of the oldest technologies we have, and I could have perhaps chosen glass, but I chose the sheep and two sticks because it is an enduring miracle that you and I are wearing things that are woven material yes. and that that's one of the first things our species was able to do. And I still think that if you showed a, an alien a sheep or a goat, and said, from that, you can get this whole world of, of materials to decorate and to dress. And um, and it is a primary thing. And it's there in our language that it's a primary thing, that um, uh, it used to be when such things were divided in a lot of cultures, not just European cultures, but around the world, between the genders, that women were considered to be the ones to spin mm. to take the to take the wool 
and to twist it into a, a form that we could call thread or twine or or wool or however we want to, you know, card it and comb it and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And men were doing brave things with sticks and killing animals. Uh, uh, but and and so we have. The spear side is the male side of a family, and the distaff side we still use to describe the female side. And the distaff is the bit you twiddle the the yes. the, uh, the the material around. All over, you know, in myth and in uh, history, the the value of people who could make these and 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 color them and and give them a little bit of character, um, so that they began to represent a family group, a clan, a tribe, a a, a wider a wider um, uh, settlement of people, and as you know, we now use them as tokens and signs with things written on T-shirts and as uniforms and all other uh, ways of being. And obviously there's the fashion industry and there's a whole, a whole load of other ways that you can look at clothing. But the simple fact that these deeply natural objects that um, grow again, <laughs> the great thing about a sheep is that it's, you know, you don't have to kill it to get, you know, whereas with vellum or something, you do have to kill the animal with, to get bone and glue and things. Whereas yeah. really, I think even a vegan would be quite happy to have wool. Fundamentalist kinds of vegan don't mind wearing wool, I don't think, do they? I, sure I don't know. So, as I was saying, they don't like honey, which is it's theft rather than murder. It's theft from the bee rather than murder of the bee. But uh, the, Yes, <laughs> it's true. Now, this is something that will take quite a bit of practice. And don't worry that if you get it wrong um, a number of times, it does take quite a while before you become relaxed enough to do this. But just remember to grip as much as you can Feel the twist going in and then draw with your right hand the yarn, the, the fleece out. And this is how to use a spinning wheel. All right, let's, let's go on to your next wonder then, which is a, a, a large object rather than a, a gift of, mm. or a, a facet of all humanity. What is your next wonder? Well, it's, a, it's something that could easily have been one of the original wonders mm. of the world. The Temple of Ephesus, I think, to, uh, uh, was. Uh, this, I think, we don't know because the Temple of Ephesus is gone, but this is mostly standing. It's in Athens. It's, you know, the supreme example of Greek Doric architecture, the Parthenon, yes. the, the building atop the Acropolis there. Um uh, dedicated to Athena, the patroness of Athens, from whom Athens got its name. She was a virgin goddess, and Parthenon is mean, from the Greek meaning virgin or maiden. And um, it's a, a, be a beautiful building of astonishing harmony, uh, but also a, a, a building that means a great deal to mm. the Greeks. It tells the story. Uh, most people will know it has its columns and atop them a sort of triangular element known as the pediment. And then between the pediment and the top of the columns is a frieze uh, and and a series of little plaques known as metopes, um, which are divided by these little uh, three fluted objects, the triglyphs. And and in those metopes, the story of of Athens uh, uh, is told. Um, it's an origin myth of, of, of great importance. It was built during the the primary period, the Periclean period of, of Athens' greatness, celebrating their victory over the Persians. So what's that, and 400, 500 years BC? That's right, yeah. BC, yeah. yeah. And, of course, it has a particular importance to me because I have 
partly inherited from my friend, the late great Christopher Hitchens, and uh, but also I've always, I think, felt it since I thought about it with any depth. Uh, there is unfinished business here. Mm. Um, uh, one of your fellow countrymen of the name of Bruce, <laughs> yes. Lord Elgin, yeah. um, took uh, a large series of the friezes um, in uh, 200 years ago uh, when the Ottoman Turks uh, uh, had Greece and Athens as part of their huge empire. Um, he claims to have got a piece of paper from the Turks, known as a firman, a, a sort of legal document, mm. uh, which allowed him to take them away. And he then gave them to the British Museum. He took a, a mould of them, which exists up in Scotland still. You can go and see the exact mould replica of, of, the, uh, uh, of, of the Parthenon marbles or Elgin marbles, as some people call them. Um, and it's been a bone of contention uh, uh, for, for really some time. Actually, from the beginning, uh, yes. Lord Byron wrote, wrote a, a, a wonderful uh, a fiery pamphlet against Elgin, against the the horror of taking these away, um, and Byron gave his life for Greek independence. Mm. He, he died in eighteen twenty four on his way to raising an army to try and kick the Turks out of Greece. And um, there has been a you know a more or less unanimous view amongst. I would call the the sane and the sensible that these should go back. Yeah. There's an argument that had they stayed, the Ottomans who were using the the Parthenon and the Acropolis as a kind of arsenal, and there'd been explosions. Probably they'd be in a worse condition than they are. But you know, if a friend has a fire and you look after their paintings, they, when they come around and ask for them back, you don't say, "No, you can't have them back." <laughs> yeah. They would have been burnt without me, so therefore they're mine. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, quite and, a story, isn't it? The, the the Elgin marbles being taken away because they're in the British Museum now, but they're only there because by the time he got them home, uh, were you intending to use for his own property? He needed to raise some money because he's had a divorce. So, yeah, so he right. he had to sell them to the British Museum or Brit sell them to the British government, and right. um, <laughs> and they were parsimonious, so they didn't give him as much money as he spent on bringing them home. Um, nobody looks good in the story. Nobody does, and I think uh, I think we could look good though. You see, I I think technology has now arrived at a place where, uh, with the extraordinary accuracy of laser and three D modeling, we uh, you could. The British Museum could make a film, a it could be a 3D film, a, a virtual reality or augmented reality film, in mm. which they show themselves making a perfect replica using the the, the laser uh, 3D printing technology, uh, and then watching it being put up onto a train, watching the train journey through Europe yes. and it arriving back in Greece. I think it would be such a classy act. If only Genuinely. there was somebody who could present this film with, uh, with an interest and, and the erudition yeah, well, to go we're, with we're, it. We're all working on it, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and uh, the annoying thing is this preposterous slippery slope argument. Uh, you know, that all oh, once you go that way, it, it, it's it's sort of not true. And well, it's, cr and it's creating a precedent that if you send back the Elgin yeah. marbles, and uh, yeah. that you didn't have to send back the Benin bronzes and the the Australian uh, bones from a kangaroo, or and in fact, everything has to go back. If, if you if you subscribe to such a fallacious idea as <laughs> as as precedent, which you as a lawyer may use in law, and yes. is 
is a very British, as Christopher Hitchin said, it's a peculiarly British idea. Aristotle, uh, who invented logic, or at least first gave it its name, uh, it was one of his. Uh, it was one of his fallacies, the slippery slope. There is such a thing as human will, and saying thus far, no father. This is the reason we do it here. We don't return Hittite objects because there are no Hittites. Yes. But the Greeks who live in Athens are the direct descendants and the direct yes. cultural heirs of the Parthenon, and they want it. Yes. And they'll do. You know, they'll. You know, Bellasconi has returned bits of, of, of Greek artifacts to uh, to Athens, but not everything that is no. in Italy. You can say thus far and no farther. The story starts in the early 1800s. The Parthenon had fallen into ruin. Half the marbles were destroyed by neglect and war. Then, a British ambassador, Lord Elgin, made an agreement with Ottoman authorities who were in control of Athens at the time to remove some of the statues and friezes. He took about half of the remaining sculptures. And then he shipped that back to the UK. For a long time, it remained part of his personal collection, so he put it on display. Um, and then he uh, made a decision to sell the collection to the nation, and the uh, uh, parliament chose to, to acquire it um, and then passed it on to the British Museum. So we would certainly say that Lord Elgin had performed a great service in terms of rescuing some of these examples. So number three, what's your third uh, wonder? Well, this is a, a strange thing to choose, but I do genuinely think it is a wonder of existence. So many things are that are abstract beauty, obviously music. You could choose all kinds of things like that. But I thought laughter would be worth choosing. Yeah. So far as we know, it is unique to our species. Yes, you can hear a similar sound and you can attribute to your pet dog a sort of sense of irony or something <laughs> vaguely to do with humour. But real laughter, real the real comic sense, laughter holding both its sides, as Milton puts it, I think. Uh, uh, this is something that... Um, it's deeply important in human life, and I think a refreshing antidote to so much of um, so much of what is wrong with us is that it, it, we we don't laugh enough. Mm. We don't laugh enough at irony and at disjunction and dissonance. We now allow dissonance to tear us apart, rather than saying, "Isn't it funny how different we are?" Mm. Rather than, "Oh, you're <laughs> wrong," you know. And and comedian, you know, Shelley said that. Poets were the unacknowledged legislators of the world. But if you, you know, I'm choosing the greats here, but if you go to a Bill Hicks or a Dave Chappelle, mm. I think you hear more sense about our culture now and about human behavior than from just about any cognitive scientist. You know, I mean, I'm a great admirer of Steven Pinker and Noah Yuval Harari and all the sort mm. of heroic figures who write bestsellers that that uh, adorn the bookshelves of Hampstead uh, intellectuals mm. and so on. But you, know, you cut through it with laughter. It, it's 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 like it's short circuit. It, it, it's it's a quicker way to the truth, yeah. and it's one that releases us from the tension and the resentment and the fear and the doubt that so much of uh, human intercourse involves us with. Well, clever people of the sort you're talking about have sometimes tried to write books or make studies of you know what causes laughter, what is comedy, <laughs> and it very yeah. usually dies in the petri dish. Well, yes, that's breaking, there, but, but it's strange. It's a strange thing, is it? Because it can be induced by different things you're mentioning some of them you know it can be laughing at somebody slipping on a banana skin or it can be just a bit of wordplay or it can be mm. laughing at somebody you know making them almost feel humiliated because they're being they're all laughter 
Absolutely. Like, like almost anything that comes from humans, it uh, it can cast a shadow as, as well as be a bright and wonderful yeah. thing. Can be cruel, can be uh, can, can be unpleasant when used in that way. There's there's no question. But I suppose uh, I, I'm obviously being idealistic here and thinking of laughter in its in its best sense. And and one of the things uh, I've talked about this recently, I can't remember where. So forgive me if you've heard it, and I sound as if I'm repeating myself, but. Um, G.K. Chesterton uh, was was marvellous at at explaining, I think, without trying to define humour, what it is that humour can do that very few other things can. And that is that it is involved in the absolute reality of experience. So that when somebody makes grand statements of, of apparently abstract truth, and he gives us an example in an essay of his, he said, I read the other day the following in the newspaper. At the trumpet call of Ibsen and Shaw, modern woman rises to take her place in society. And I thought, that's very good. That's, mm. not, that's marvellous news for modern woman. Let's see if it's true. Uh, who's a modern woman? that Mrs. Buttons. Mrs. Buttons comes in every Tuesday and Thursday and scrubs the floor. She comes by omnibus. That's very modern. She lives in Clapham, quite a modern sort of little suburb. Um, so she's a, definitely a modern woman. So I say to myself, at the trumpet call of Ibsen and Shaw, Mrs. Buttons rises to take her place <laughs> in society. And I realise that the, the phrase is not just nonsense, it's pernicious nonsense too and, and and that's what comedy does it tests yes. it tests these grand non you know abstract ideas on the anvil of true experience which can sound ridiculous and as mm. he said uh, because I might say that um, a, a knobbly knee with pimples on it and another knobbly knee with pimples on it makes two knobbly knees with pimples on it. People go, what's he getting at? He's funny. What's he talking about? <laughs> Whereas uh, um, a philosopher or a, a mathematician will say A plus A equals 2A, and everybody nods. <laughs> but the fact is, in this whole universe, there are many, many knobbly knees with pimples on them, but there is no such thing as A. <laughs> and, and, and it's not to, you know, not to diss the whole idea of substitutional algebra and so forth. Of course, there's immense use of these things as tools, but it is, and you're laughing because it is funny. That's such but, a Stephen Fry expression. <laughs> this is not to diss the <laughs> substitutional algebra. No, I've never thought to do that. <laughs> Look, Stephen, I want to ask you, because I want to just inquire a little bit. So, so, but laughter, what, what, did you have this in mind? Laughter you've experienced, laughing at things, laughing at other people's performance, or are you in the back of your mind thinking, I love generating a laugh. I love being on stage I, and hearing people laughing when I say something. I do, and I, I regret that I am um, propelled more by seriousness and uh, a desire to tell stories. I hope never to drop humour, but I'm not a full comedian. I just don't have it in the same way that I recognise I'm not an artist in any sort, uh, nor am I a, a true comic. And I, 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 do you know, this is to me is the best defense of laughter, the best apology, as a philosopher would say, for laughter there ever was, um, is the great Preston Sturgis, the, the um, writer-director in the golden age of Hollywood, who made four or five absolute masterpieces, one of which is called Sullivan's Travels, starring Joel McRae and Veronica Lake. And uh, it's about a film director who's a hugely successful director of comedies, 
like Preston Sturgis, mm. if you like, uh, in the era of the the white telephone comedies, you know, set in smart apartments yes. in New York with uh, double-taking butlers and, you know, mm. wonderful farcical plots, the kind of stories that underwrite a lot of Fred Astaire movies and that sort of thing. Anyway, right. um, it, but he has an ambition. It's the depression. He wants to go out and make a movie about the suffering, the torment, the pain, the injustice, a kind of, you know, grapes of wrath for, for, for the cinema. And he wants to call it, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, which you may recognize yes. it because, of course, the Cohen brothers took yeah. the title from the film for their own film. Right. Um, okay. Anyway, Sullivan... Uh, he, the producers are furious because they, they, they know how much money his comedies make. But they go, okay, go out. Go. So he, he gets rid of his butler and he puts on shabby clothes and he goes out onto a rail car, you know, in the classic mm. hobo bum way of the American Depression. And through a series of misadventures, he ends up in prison for, for murder. And he's on a chain gang. And he resents and he fights and he gets beaten. I mean, it gets very dark. But then he eventually settles down and hes you kind of think he is, you know, he is beaten by the system and he is behaved well enough to have the Sunday treat that the prisoners go to. Cut to a Baptist church with his pastor. It's all uh, uh, the black people. We're in the South. We're in mm. South Carolina, Alabama. Uh, and it's this beautiful black Baptist church. And the pastor gets up and says, now, and somebody starts to pull down a sheet uh, against the wall. And the pastor says, now, remember, these are our guests and they're very unhappy. And whatever they've done, they deserve to be smiled and to be made felt, felt welcome. And he thought, what's going on, and then in shuffle the prisoners in their manacles, and they sit down, and the, and the members of the church smile at them and bow at them, and you see Joel McRae still scowling, still angry at how he's been treated. And the cinema, uh, the projector starts, and they're shown, uh, uh, it starts off with a Disney comedy, a Disney, mm. you know, Pluto and, and so on, and the prisoners start to scream with laughter, and the camera tracks back and forth and back and forth over the rows, and you see Joel McRae is the only face not laughing. And then he starts to laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh, tears running down his face. Everybody's laughing. Well, a bit further forward, the problem of his imprisonment is sorted out. Someone recognizes his face, realizes that he's who he is. Press crews come and everybody arrives, the producers. He's out of prison and he's on his way back to Hollywood. And the producers say, well, now you can make, oh, brother, where art thou? And Joel Sullivan says, no, no, I'm going to make a comedy. Don't you know? <laughs> For some people, laughter is all they have in this cockeyed caravan, boy. Mm. And those are the last words of the film yeah. as it fades into uh, the sight of those prisoners crying and crying and crying with laughter. It's a fantastic moment. And, and that, if any, tells you, yes, comedy is enough. You know, of course, tragedy is great, but I think, and I've always felt, Shakespeare is great be because of his comedy. I mean, he's great if he'd only written the tragedies, of course, mm. as Seneca was or Racine or any great tragedian. Yeah. But he is truly great because of the comedy he integrates into the tragedy and the comedies he writes. Yeah. And same with Dickens and the same with Joyce. I think, uh, you know, sometimes I look at EastEnders. Uh, you know, the, the joke about EastEnders is it's very true to life, except nobody mentions watching EastEnders. Yes. But actually what's it, where it fails so often, unlike Coronation Street, at least I haven't seen them for years, so forgive me if I'm wrong, is that it isn't as funny. If you yeah. go, I mean, people are 
whatever their situation, they're usually joking. You look at a market in East End of London or in Huddersfield or yeah. Edinburgh, it doesn't matter where you are, there's mostly people joking with each other, even if it's a cheap, silly, ironic line yeah. about the weather being lovely when it's raining, you know, a very basic piece of <laughs> sarcasm. <laughs> That's how people are. We get through life by laughing. And yeah. dramatists and writers who forget it, I think uh, it, it would be like reading a play in which everybody has only one leg and no one comments on it. Why don't you want to make old brother where art thou, Sully? Well, in the first place, I'm too happy to make old brother where art thou. In the second place, I haven't suffered enough to make old brother where art thou. You haven't suffered enough. He hasn't suffered enough. No. But Sully... And I'll tell you something else. There's a lot to be said for making people laugh. Did you know that's all some people have? It isn't much, but it's better than nothing in this cockeyed caravan. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That brings us to uh, printing, which I know is your next uh, wonder. Mm. So I'll, I'll upstage you by saying that. So wh what particular aspect of printing are you going to uh, select? Well, I suppose it's the invention of movable type by mm. Johannes Gutenberg in the mid-15th century, which was an extraordinary step forward. Um, Yes, uh, it's worth pointing out that the, in Korea, I think they had uh, porcelain or, or um, you know, China uh, sort of ceramic uh, movable type of a kind. Uh, mm. And there were obviously wood blocks and other forms of printing. But the, the miraculous uh, bringing together the synthesis of different technologies, the press point, which was inspired by the olive presses and wine presses that G Gutenberg had seen, um, and the, 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 the lead alloy that he developed that allowed him to, to make letters that were all, all just about identical from a mold, uh, yeah. so all these E's, and then to put them in a case, uh, the, the capital ones at the top and the lower ones at the bottom, hence obviously upper and lower case. And he produced a few documents, originally uh, indulgences for the yes. holy year of 1450, I think, which was um, which were kind of the 
Catholic Church's sin offset vouchers. You could you could buy one of these and then sin. Literally, yes. it forgave you if it, if you paid. You know, let's put it into euros or something. If you paid a thousand euros, you might be able to commit ten sins. Ten thousand mm. euros, a hundred sins, and so mm. on. And so the church made a great deal of money, and people were able to go around sinning uh, for free and then still go to heaven. It was a win-win or a sin-sin yeah, situation, exactly. I suppose. Yeah, this got him on the side uh, enough of the church to get their permission to print the Bible because, you know, everything had to happen by the say-so of the church in those days. And he was in part of the greater Catholic empire. He was in Metz and Strasbourg. Uh, And and, um, uh, so perhaps foolishly, the Pope at the time said, yes, it would be very charming. We'd love to have one of a Bible done in this way. So he produced the famous Gutenberg Bibles, Mm -hmm. a few of them on vellum and the the others on handmade paper. Um, But the extraordinary thing was that, you know, in 1450, there was no book that had been printed in this process. By, by 1500, there were, there were millions. Yes. It, it was, I mean, we've seen something like it in our lifetime, you and I, Clive, yeah. with, with the web pages, if you like, with, yeah. from going to zero in 1993 to, to, to however many there are in the world now. <laughs> uncountable I mean, the, ones. Exactly, yeah. uncountable. So, and, just, and, just to go back on Gutenberg mm, before we, we sort of lose him, because mm, uh, you obviously know all about him, but uh, uh, did he realise, did he have any idea the revolution that he was uh, engendering? by coming up with this handy way of flogging a few more indulgences. I think he knew he could make a lot of money. I don't think he could foresee the depths to which this technology would would go because it is it is so revealing that it, it altered the world. I mean, it's as I say, 1450, and then and then by 1515, um, Luther. Uh, uh, with, with all kinds of German Bibles now printed, of course, in German, Luther was able to to nail his declaration and to to completely alter the yeah. disposition of Europe as far as religion was concerned. And the cat was out of the bag, and the scientific revolution. People were able to swap information across continents about th- so Galileo and and Newton and and all these figures. Um, they, they they produced books that could be reproduced at a fraction of what had been the cost before that. It was only monks in Scriptoria who were able to do that and so these ideas proliferated of so course, these are big stages they definitely you identify other ones so it, it's when writing was invented that meant yeah. not just bards who could remember histories and, and stories and greek myths and so forth then that you know that did us quite well for some time then the printing and then you've already mentioned in our lifetime we've now gone another stage where you and i and everybody else in the world has access within seconds that's to right. every bit of knowledge that's ever been invented, as long as you can, your search engine is up to yes. it, your Wi-Fi link and, doesn't go down. And and the same language is used by the the, the gatekeepers of the previous eras. That you can be sure that the uh, the bards uh, and rhapsodes of the Homeric era, mm. when writing arrived. Uh, were, shook their heads and said, "This will be the end of proper poetry and proper yeah. invention. Uh, people will just, you know." And, and similarly, of course, the monks and uh, and scholars of of Gutenberg's time, as as printing developed, and then through Caxton in Britain, of course. Um, uh, all shook their heads and said, uh, "No one will know anything anymore. It's just in books now. They'll yeah. be able to look it up." Yeah. And 
lo and behold, Wikipedia, same thing. Oh, well, no, nobody knows anything anymore. They just cheat and look it up online, as if that's cheating, <laughs> uh, and as if the Gutenberg revolution uh, reduced the sphere of human knowledge. Of course, what happened is it exploded. It was the primary force behind, first of all, the age of reason, as you might call it, uh, and then the Enlightenment as it, mm. as it grew and grew. It was all about publishing. It was all about the fact that so a vital cheaper of- and cheaper yeah, vital. A vital yeah. stage of printing. But I think you've got to forgive the monks and the bards um, oh, and, and yes. everyone else nowadays. It's the, the boatman is looking at the building of a bridge and it's <laughs> it's the end exactly. of his lifestyle, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. <laughs> and one has every sympathy. Absolutely oh. right. All right. Well, I, I'm going to rush you on because there are more, mm. more wonders to go and, and time is running out. The fifth one is uh, what, Stephen? Well, it's it's a game. It's the game. It's the greatest game ever devised by humankind, so far as I've yet been able to discover. Uh, my mind, I promise you, is open to, to <laughs> the discovery of a greater game, but I'm pulling forward cricket. cricket. Um, now, I know a lot of people immediately yawn because they don't <laughs> like cricket. They, they find it uh, boring or they too complicated. And I, I absolutely understand. I have many passions which I know are not shared. I'm, Wagner is even worse as far as most people are concerned. And both actually, funnily enough, take five days. <laughs> so, it will seem like it. It will seem like it, yeah. <laughs> and um, so I, I, you know, I can't, I'm not here to defend cricket, but for those who are listening who, like me, really understand and enjoy cricket, they will know what I mean by it being the greatest game ever devised. There is, uh, it's not about sport either. I mean, I love sport. Well, this is this is the odd thing, if I may say, the odd thing about you, Stephen. I, I, I big you up as knowing a lot of stuff, but but the extraordinary thing, I've never, I occasionally bring up a sub when I bump into you and it could be uh, some very erudite thing that I don't think about and I, you can fill me in on it, but it could be a cricket match or a darts tournament or the snooker <laughs> or American football, for God's sake, or baseball. And you seem mm. to know everything about all of them as well. And you, you, you follow them. So, now, were you a sporty child at school? No, I was appallingly unsporty. I'm physically very uncoordinated, almost dyspraxic, you might say. I think I couldn't catch a ball. You know, I was one of those people who did that to try and catch it, snatched away. People yeah. got, I got laughed at. I could barely yeah. run without running into a tree. You know, yeah. I mean, it was absolutely unco was a nickname, short for uncoordinated. Oh, that's, no. that's how, yeah, it was all. Well, that's not too bad. There are worse nicknames you might <laughs> have been are. given. Exactly. So but when was, cricket was being played on the, 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 the green of, Upping or whichever school you were mm. at, um, were you uh, sitting watching or pretending to watch and reading a book of poetry, but you know, Byronic odes the, or something? Th- there was a touch of that, um, yeah, reading Malame and the Long Grass, yes, yes. <laughs> but Bonzo actually, dog, isn't it? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, well yeah. spotted, very good. And and the boy's called Stephen in that song, oddly enough, the, <laughs> the song the, the Odd Boy, yes. yes. Um, but uh, I scoring, I, I, I. I was, I think, forced to score for a match. And I suddenly got very excited about this remarkable world of cricket scoring. About yeah. You don't just put down how many runs, but in each ball that is bowled oh, has yes. a little symbol, a dot if there's no run yeah. from it, and, and so on. And the have been swept and, away, I dare say, by computers now. I bet you sit there uh, to, with to, a, to a large degree, yeah. I'm sure. But um, And so being at this school in the country, in Gloucestershire it was, in fact, miles from home <laughs> in Norfolk, but Gloucestershire was a major county. And I would go with friends to watch Sunday league cricket and um, Mike Proctor, the great South African player, 
played there, and Shepard, who then became a famous umpire, famous for standing on one leg. And um, and I, I got uh, obsessed with watching the game. But whenever I tried to play it, I was hopeless. In school holidays, I would bowl apples, and I bowled off the wrong foot because that's how Proctor bowled. Oh, um, really? So I was imitating him. He could get the most prodigious swing. Oh. So I could bowl very accurately, but it was a, it looked peculiar. People laughed when <laughs> I did it. I well, um, you get a wicket with your first ball if you're lucky because it's so yeah, surprising. That exactly. Was- <laughs> and I did actually. I mean, I, I was for a time, I would get quite a few wickets in village cricket and things yeah. like that. But, um, yeah, it, it, it grew and grew and grew. And, and uh, I was very lucky to have friends who who were big in the MCC and who knew uh, 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 family friends had um, the Australian cricketers to stay during uh, yeah. London-based uh, test matches, i.e. the Oval or Lords. So I would actually meet some of these heroes. And one of the great good fortunes of, of, of being in a sort of show-busy world is you get invited to things and you, you get to know people. And mm. so I started to do things in cricket, and I'm now very pleased to be a patron of, uh, uh, of, of the um, MCC Foundation, which is there to try and broaden cricket. It's a deeply yes. unfair game. I mean, you know how everything in our culture is being rebuilt, it seems, and taken down and rebuilt and yeah. trying to be built on fairer grounds, and some people can mock the wokeness of it and we can all this is why laughter is so important we can all laugh at some of the earnestness and irritating features of some of these humorless attempts to rebuild but i think you can also recognize that it is absurd how how the large proportion of privately educated players in both the female and male game of cricket and how wonderful it is that there are these amazing facilities in private schools uh, that are now starting to be shared uh, with, with other schools so that the talent that's there can shine, a chance to shine. Uh, is uh, this what's a, uh, which type of cricket do you like? I mean, I'm just guessing, I don't know, but you probably don't like 2020 cricket as much as test cricket, cricket played over five yes, days. Yes, I, I don't like it as much, but I don't despise it mm. at all. And um, uh, I, I'm aware that, that cricket, like like anything, um, like cinema, like, like poetry, develops over time. It doesn't stand still. Oscar Wilde made a, a wonderful point about how uh, Victorian um, Philistines couldn't understand that art was always modernizing. Yeah. And he said, would you ask a scientist to repeat the science of, of Isaac Newton? No, you expect them to find new modes of understanding, to penetrate new truths about the world. Artists like scientists do this too. And even a cultural entity like cricket is finding new ways of expressing itself as a game. It is a, a game balanced between bat and ball, and it's actually miraculous how well balanced. You know, there are periods where you think the batsman's technique is so great now, the sixes they score, that bowlers haven't got a hope. And suddenly back come arcane forms of bowling that were out of fashion when I was young. All kinds of leg spin bowling and uh, arts of bowling are suddenly the most successful, even in uh, in, in 2020 cricket, in T20, yeah. uh, uh, the leg spinners are, are perhaps the most valuable bowlers of all. Slow bowlers, you know. So the, 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 it's, it's constantly changing and it's becoming uh, and of course, India has a billion devotees of cricket and yeah. has altered the game in many respects. And I'm all for that. I, 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 but I wouldn't want the five day test to disappear in whites. It still produces astonishing results. Terribly yes. exciting. I've talked too much about cricket. I can see that glazed look coming no, in no, your not, eye. Not at, which not I, at all. I was looking at something. I was looking at something else. <laughs> I had to look at. But um, I, I just wonder if you, grown up, you, adult, you. Mm. 
may I even suggest middle-aged you, if you could, <laughs> oh, if, if you could communicate with you as a, as a schoolboy, would you encourage you as a schoolboy to play a bit more, to get more involved in the playing of it? I would. I mean, I am one of those pathetic middle-aged fantasists who occasionally, in order to try and get to sleep, puts myself on to bowl against Australia and 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 fantasizes me back, being back at school. I mean, yeah. it is a it's an extraordinary thing about getting older is that the the dreams you have in which you resit your exams and get a better you know yeah. it's what is the matter with me? Do I still have this unfinished business from fifty years ago? What is wrong? And yet, I don't know if you're the same as me. But 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 what weirdly I do and I, I yeah I well have I to... I always imagined from the moment I first knew you I always imagined you came fully formed into mm. the world <laughs> as this sort of uh, you know brain on a stick oh. um, and yet and of course then you did go through some rough uh, patches oh, yeah. in your teenage years you were, I think you were expelled from school and you um, were you were even in uh, youth custody because you missed um, yeah. um, a credit card so oh, yeah. so that's a, we were touching on this earlier there are agonies that you have been through, but you must <laughs> always have felt uh, clever enough to cope with exams and with yes. study, I am assuming. Uh, which is a, a, both an advantage and a disadvantage. Uh, my, my father, who was a very brilliant man, uh, often said, um, uh, when you learn to work, you, you will become interesting. <laughs> uh, as fathers said things like that to their children. Yeah. Like that. And I was very angry. I said, well, I don't need to work. I can pass exams. He said, yeah, but when you think, if you think, You've never thought. Everything you do is pastiche and reproduction, and it's very brilliant, but you've never thought, have you? And mm. I used to resent this, get so angry with him because he was a deep thinker. And um, it took me a very long time. In fact, in prison, really, when I first started to think about what I was passionate about, about Shakespeare, for example. You mentioned Shakespeare. Mm. And I read every single Shakespeare play and made notes on every line of it and became and, and penetrated it in a way that I never did when I was younger. This is and, when you were in, a, in custody, you, you did this. Yeah. yeah. I suddenly thought, well, you know, it's, either, it's now or never. I either, you know, turn to crime and, 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 uh, and, and sort of, you know, lose my place in the world, or I decide that maybe I, I can do something with myself that, that I'd be proud of. And I realized that it didn't matter how gifted I was or wasn't how facile and, uh, for, you know, my, my gifts were. They were nothing unless I thought yes. hard. And, you know, we, sportsmen will tell you the same. It doesn't matter how, you know, you may be the best at hitting a ball over the net uh, when you're 14, but unless you then spend thousands of hours training yourself, you'll never be any good at it. Yes. Uh, and, and, and similarly with, you know, I guess... I, I learnt the well. I, I learnt the pleasure of work, the joy of work, which sounds so dull, but but it you know I used to have uh, just literally actually where I'm pointing above this particular computer a sign from um, Noel Coward, which just said, "Work is more fun than fun," mm. and. I, uh, mostly I'm lucky enough to feel that. I, I, you know, my poor husband, when, when, when we go on holiday, <laughs> he, he wakes up, and I've been awake since half past five usually, and I've compiled a list of the art galleries we're going to oh, and the things we're yeah. going to see, and he goes, we're on holiday. 
I go, oh, I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> but what do I do then? And he goes, you do. <laughs> I said, I'll read this book because I know that yeah. someone sent it to me. No, don't read it because someone sent it to you. Read the book you want, you want to, to read. read. Yes. yes. Oh, dear. I only ever read books written by people I'm about to interview. And on holiday, it's to get ahead of the ones that are going. But work is more fun than fun. That's such a, yeah. that's such a Presbyterian motto. I can do. It is, except a Presbyterian wouldn't use fun. It's more important than fun. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Acknowledges that. That's pitched just short of a very good length and it's turned. Beautiful delivery from S. Warren. Now, your, your sixth wonder, I was surprised to see on the list. I don't know what it's doing there, but away oh, well, you go. I'm going to unpack it. It's, the, it's amber, mm. but it needs unpacking because it, it takes me back to my beloved ancient Greeks who saw that amber had a peculiar quality, that when you took this hardened resin um, and rubbed it against your chiton or skirt, um, it attracted... <laughs> oh, that's what it is. <laughs> it, it, your mime could have been anything. I don't know what you're rubbing. Tisk, tisk. <laughs> um, it attracted fluff and dirt. Yes. Now, they'd already seen attraction at a distance in the stones that grew in a part of Thessaly called magnesium, and they called them, after magnesium, magnetite, and obviously mm. we call them magnets. Yes. They attracted bits of iron. And now they had this other thing, that rubbing an am amber attracted fluff and dust. And action at a distance, as you know, un underwrites so much of what science and technology has been obsessed with. Uh, it's what gravity is, action mm -hmm. at a distance. Things move, yet they're not touched. They're, they are remote. Um, and the Greek for at a distance is tele. So sound at a distance is telephone and so forth. Yes. Um, and communication at a distance is telecommunication. Well, the Greek for amber is electron. Yes. And so for hundreds of years after the Greeks, people were interested in the amberiness the electricity. It, it was just called amberiness, but mm. it, we used the Greek word electricity. Um, and then you, you come to people like Alessandro Volta in the early 18th century, who, um, who did uh, remarkable things uh, with uh, electricity and created these piles, as he called them, these pila, these batteries, we would now call them, in which he was able to store this electricity for the first time. Before, it had just been a question of rubbing things and maybe turning handles and creating friction that seemed also to produce this amberiness. Um, and on and on it went. Uh, throughout the 19th century, uh, people worked on it, particularly Faraday and uh, Maxwell and uh, and some really great thinkers, um, and were be able to control it to some extent and more than that to unite it with this other action that's a distance magnetism from the other greek word um and electromagnetism was born and the rules behind it were laid out um and um and then napoleon funnily enough had given this prize called the volta prize in honor of alessandro volta because he had seen some of these sparky things happening and was very amazed by them and said i'm going to give a lot of money um and to someone who can find something to do with this wonderful thing. Yes. And when the, the prize fell into disuetude, but it was re, reinvigorated in the late 19th century and was won by Alexander Graham Bell. 
uh, uh, who had done some very remarkable things with electricity, as, as we know, he, the telephone. He's credited and, with the telephone. I'm not sure. Yeah, well, the, it, but yeah, yeah, yeah. He can't, he deserved it. Yeah. You know, yeah, okay, it was right. a race to the patent office. Yes. I grant you. <laughs> yeah. He rang but on ahead. So he, he, yeah, exactly. But <laughs> he had every reason to be, you know, proud yeah. of what he'd done, um, and particular reason to be proud of what he did with the Volta Prize because he gave it to uh, he gave it to the foundation of what were known as the Bell Labs uh, and the Bell Labs gave us sound recording on film um, and all kinds of extraordinary technologies most perhaps most remarkable one of all was a a thermionic diode type thing, and it was a, a three rather than two, uh, which was eventually named by the Bell Labs a transistor. Mm. And some of the people who worked in the Bell Labs then moved over. By coincidence, a man called William Shockley, who worked at the Bell Labs, happened to be born in a dusty no, nowhere town in in California, um, uh, in 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 the valley there, uh, in quite north part of the valley, uh, near a Stanford University, which had just been built. And so he moved there and formed a group uh, to develop the transistor further. And they fell out. They were the hateful eight, according to according to Shockley, who was a fascist and a most peculiar and sad man, as well as being a genius. And, um, and so they set up their own company called Integrated Electronics, uh, where they put these transistors together, Intel for short. Yeah. Um, and the founder of that company was Gordon Moore. And Gordon Moore uh, propounded his extraordinary law, Moore's Law, which said, he said this in the early 60s, he said every 18 months, we will be able to double the number of transistors we fit on the same amount of silicon uh, mm. out of which we make these integrated circuits. Uh, and that meant that every 18 months or so, computing, computer power and electronic power generally was able to double in, 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 in its capacity and its speed and so on. And uh, this has resulted in altering the world in the most phenomenal ways, as had the telephone, the telegram, well, this, the other this uses. This is a remarkable story you tell, and, uh, and it's, it's fascinating. It seems a long way from amber, though. Exactly, in your, yeah. exactly. Yes. But the, the name is there still in yes. electron, in oh. electricity, in electronics, in everything we do. It comes down to the fact that you know Notice something in, and many many people would have said, "Oh yeah, it's just a little trick." It's like mm. who cares? It's like when you you see an optical illusion and people say, "Oh, it's just an optical illusion." You go, yeah. No, an optical illusion is a gateway into the brain and how we perceive and the difference between the reality in our head and the reality out there. It's not a just thing. It's incredibly exciting, yeah. and similarly. Many people, many Greeks would have said, oh, yeah, if you rub it, it goes that. You know, mm. Like you did at school. Oh, you take a comb and rub it on your blazer and mm. it attracts bits of paper and dust. But an imaginative mind says, how can that be? Sub you know, this is like carry or telekinesis. It's a tele thing. Yes. It's, it's movement at a distance. I and feel we're not really applying. Or I'm not applying myself because you can rub a balloon and then stick uh, it on the wall. It's the same it's thing. It's something yeah. you do at Christmas. But it's the same there's, thing. There's a whole industry you could build out of that. Possibly. Well, the, we have. That is the same. <laughs> that is same precisely thing, the same thing. Yeah. That's the point. Well, just to mention amber is, uh, it's it's resin from plants, from, from trees, yeah. That's and it's fossilized and it's, it's used as sort of like a semi-precious material yes, and it sometimes right. has little insects trapped in it from thousands of years ago so it's already a wonder of the world yes. even before you build a, a computer on top of it and, and michael 
Michael Crichton, of course, had this very delightful idea that maybe if if there was a piece of amber with a mosquito in it that was from uh, millions of years ago, maybe that mosquito had, before being trapped in amber, had bitten a dinosaur. Yes. And so if you take out the mosquito from its amber and find inside its DNA, you might get the DNA of a dinosaur, which you could reconstruct. And he wrote a novel about that that yeah. he called Jurassic Park. Yes. Um, um, <laughs> and and now, of course, people are saying, well, he's he's not that wrong. Yeah. It could easily happen. We could find the DNA of a lot of dead animals and a lot of dead species. Mammoths we're already talking about, because there we have whole pieces of them that were frozen in yes. tundra. Yes. So that's pretty exciting, isn't it? I've already got Ian Malcolm, but they think he's too trendy. They want Alan Grant. Grant? You'll never get him out of Montana. Loose, bus. Why not? Muchachos, échame loose! Why not? Because Grant's like me. He's a digger. Que lindo eres. Look, Amber, uh, I'm going to have to move you on because we've got one final, one final wonder that you bring to the the table. Uh, this is a this is a big item, uh, but again, relates to some of your other things. Goes back a long way. It does actually, and, and to what I just mentioned, mammoths, I suppose, are mm. almost connected. And this is the great Lasco caves, and I would include the Chauvet caves as well. These two uh, remarkable discoveries of the 20th century, the Lasco caves. I think in about 1940, I remember uh, as a a great Henry Miller travel book in which he goes to Greece and he goes via France and he talks about this recent discovery. I think it's in 1941 he wrote it of these caves. And um, here, Paleolithic man, Cro-Magnon man, they used to call him sometimes, uh, in the Pleistocene, the Ice Age, um, about, in I think in the Lascaux Caves, about 17,000 years ago. So we're talking about at a time when humans had language Yes. But they didn't write. But they clearly had an instinct to preserve experience in a way that wasn't writing. It was art. And and they produced these serious pieces of work on their caves. And, and the, the later discovery in the 1990s, which I remember well, was the Chauvet Caves, uh, which also... Uh, uh, yes. And they're both closed to the public because they're incredibly... Well, as soon as the air got into them, because they'd been cunningly mm. trapped by various you know, geological movements and disasters. And well, that's extraordinary. That's a wonder in itself, that yeah. the climactic, if that's the right word for it, conditions in the cave remain constant Absolutely. and, and non-destroying, yeah. non-destructive for all those thousands of years and then you open up a shaft and go in there and immediately mold starts growing on it and you have to shut everybody out exactly right yeah. exactly right the, the great uh, hans werner herzog uh, um uh, made a um werner herzog made a mm. uh, a film about the chauvet caves which is a 3d film uh, and is uh, he hated 3d but he, he he sort of felt he needed it because he had to ex- you had to express how these artists had done an animal using the bow and the bend of a cave to to help fill yeah. out and give a sense of depth to the animal and so it was a really important part of appreciating this and and of course the beauty of it is you look at these our ancestors this is towards the end of the ice age well technically we're still in the ice age but you mm-hmm. know what i mean the pleistocene era um yeah. um it, it 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 had been you know 
we'd been living in caves in position in conditions that we can only guess at of course um there's no other record except th- these uh, and the fossil record the bone record and a few artifacts obviously the archaeology but to see this is it worship is it you know very easy to try and either patronize these people because they must be primitive, but they were us. Uh, So some of them were brilliant and some of them were stupid, you know, just as they are, just as we are now. But were they, was this a way of using them as a religious ritual, as a way of keeping them at bay? Because some of them are prey animals like leopards and fierce things, but other ones are animals they would want to kill. Aurochs, which are kind of early Oh, they're giant cows, yes. That could be, it could be just art for art's sake. It might have no religious significance whatsoever. Well, this speaks to a theory of mine, which is not very uh, credible at all, but uh, I like the idea of the gene pool and that if you imagine a cave with a family, there are uh, men who go off with their spears hunting. The, the women are foraging and bringing up the children and probably joining in the hunt as well. But there are one or two <laughs> men like me who go, oh, I can't, I can't hold spears and I can't throw them. I'm absolutely hopeless. But I'll, I'll tell you what, after dinner, I'll tell you all a story. Yes. How's that? Or another one says, well, I'm no good at stories, but I don't, why don't we decorate <laughs> the walls of the cave? They're so dull. You know, the, the gene pool needs. Yes. But once once you've got enough calories, and yes. and that's really the point. The ice age was was shrinking, uh, if, if you, it was thawing, um, yeah. and uh, we were getting better at hunting. Our tools were better, and it, it, it appears, particularly in that area of France, there was a great deal of game. So there was time for the, you know, and language was had de- developed so richly by this point that there were people able to tell stories about why the stars shine and why there's a rumble when there's uh, when it rains because there's a god who does this or and then they you know mythologies build and artists start to to decorate and to yeah. affirm those mythologies and the power of animals and our relationship to them and our gratitude to them for giving us these extra calories and, and I so think this on. is an it's an excellent theory. We've got let's how we describe them: aesthetic young men uh, doing yes. pi- doing pictures of their oryks on the cave walls. <laughs> well, basically, <laughs> and yeah. we, we all enjoyed it. Okay, look, Stephen, I've I forced you to go through because it's ridiculous giving you seven things to talk about because you only really need one thing, and you could have taken in all human knowledge. But thank you for sharing your seven wonders with me. I have to choose the wonder of wonders from your list of seven. Oh, the one that struck me is particularly wonderful, as you described it on this podcast. It's possibly because it's come last, and I can't now think of anything else that you've said. <laughs> uh, but no, no, it's, I think the, the Lascaux Caves, which takes us back into our history, our prehistory, uh, as indeed uh, spinning wool from sheep. But uh, I, I think mm. the, the idea of those always fascinated me as well, how these pictures got to, got to get there. And uh, mm. your theory of this reflects a, a division in society and the importance of the artist uh, in, mm. in, at that time. I think that that's... That appeals to me, so I will I will go with that. Hurrah, uh, I'm very pleased. I might have gone with laughter, but David Badil selected not laughter, but it was the particular laugh you get as a comedian when you say something for the first time, You're a new bit of material, and the laugh you get from that. So, And I selected that because I thought that was a, oh, for, for him, because yes. I thought that was a particularly apposite thing for anybody <laughs> engaged in anything like comedy. There is a sudden, especially if there's a little thought in your mind, you think, oh, I can use that again uh, at the next speech or the next bit of stand-up. Or the- there's the, the laugh you get 
40 years after you write the joke <laughs> that nobody gets, which is the, I mean, this happened to me just the other week, which is uh, Hugh did, uh, Hugh and I did this sketch, which showed off Hugh's brilliant ability to throw himself horizontally along the grass. And it was about a, a football academy, which teaches the young footballers how to dive. All right. Essentially, that was a kind of, you know, yeah. joke about yeah. that. Um, and I introduced it as this earnest football. It wasn't a joke at all. I just said, uh, if you want your children to be a Premier League footballer, um, and I just liked saying Premier League and footballer, and I, you know, I didn't expect anyone to notice it. I got an email from someone the other day saying, life is now worthwhile because of the way you said Premier League footballer, and I thought, well, that, that's taken nearly 40 years yes. for someone to notice a tiny little detail. Those so, are fantastic. It's not quite the same thing. Ye yesterday no. I was walking around outside inspecting some with a couple of other people and a, a, a young man, and you can take credit for this as well, a young youngish man who came and said, oh, aren't, and he wasn't quite certain, which is a bit disappointing, aren't you the guy that used to present Whose Line Is It Anyway? I said, yes. Um, I so enjoyed that show that I went to drama school because I was inspired by the performers on that day. And I think he meant you uh, as much I'm, as anybody I'm else. I'm sure so. he meant John, the, the, our late, the late, yes, sadly late, late John session. Johnny, yeah. Yes. All right, well, we're, we're straying off into uh, yes. well, happy, mostly happy memories tinged with sadness. But uh, but thank you very much for sharing your seven wonders with me today, Stephen. Thanks for Get asking me. back to work. I will. Seven Wonders with Clive Anderson is a Stack production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the Acast Creator Network. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.